know that everywhere that we go, you are present with us, and we love to sing these truths. We love to sing the deep, rich gospel truths, and we love to sing about you, our Father, who are sovereign. You, Lord, are sovereign over all. You are sovereign over all creation, for you have made it, and you are sovereign over every salvation. Father, we come to this text believing that and knowing that, and yet really what we see here is the divine fruit of that, how you call men to yourself, you call men to do something that is contrary to their nature, and that is to reject themselves and turn completely to Christ. And oh, Father, how we love to see it, and we have seen it in our own hearts, and in some of our children, and we long to see more. And so, oh, Father, come now. Send your Spirit. You who are already here, come and move in our hearts and change us and cause us to glory in Christ Jesus more because we have been together in this place. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 4, you thought we were done. This great story of the woman of Samaria and Jesus' conversation with her at the well. Last week, we came to the climax of the story of Jesus' meeting with this woman. And I don't know about you, but studying this passage for me every time I do is a veritable feast for the soul. I have so enjoyed this. You know, I think this has been the best part yet. And then I get to the next text and I think, oh no, this is the best part. Uh, It's like a story that just doesn't stop getting better, and so it is in the Gospels. We've invested five weeks of sermons in this story alone, and I've preached twice a week, which means I've had 10 messages in 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 this story, this narrative, and you probably don't know what it's like to preach, most of you, but if you've ever had to preach two sermons in the same place at the same time, same sermon... And what you come to realize is there's no such thing as the same sermon. And so really, every time I get up, even though this is my second time today to preach this message, I know that God will bring things to my mind that I hadn't thought of. And so this is mutual learning as we bring the Word of God to bear on our own hearts and we seek to understand these things and praise God as we do. I hope that you experience what I just described, that every time I sit down and study God's word or preach it, the more of the glory of Christ I see. I hope that as you come to the word of God, every time you open this book, your first question will not be, what does this this text say to me about my job or my family or my whatever, but what does this text tell me about Christ? What does it tell me about God? Because that's the main thing, right? Come on now. You got to wake up. Okay. Um, This is the main thing. I hope you read the Gospels this way. I hope when you come to the Gospels, you do so with a resolve to discover all that you can about the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ, because that's why John wrote it. That's why Matthew wrote his, and, and Mark, and Luke so that we would see the glory of Christ. And as, as John says, all the way at the end, he gives us his purpose at the end, and he says, these things I've, I've written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have what? Life in his name. And so I challenge you to come back to this text and others, and as you read through the Gospels, Look for the glory of Christ. And this story has been especially powerful. It's like, I liken it to a a powerful spiritual microscope. And we look at on the page, and through it we're given the opportunity to see past kind of the verbal flow of the story into the very mysteries of God in Christ. We see glory here. This isn't just a story. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what has been revealed? Well, too many things for me to review, but I just made a a kind of a grocery list of things that that stood out to me and perhaps other things, too, that I I just couldn't fit. But let let me just, at the beginning of this message, uh, we haven't gotten to the message yet. I'll tell you when we're there. 
Um, but just, just a few things, um, six to be exact. First, we learn something about the glory of Jesus' humanity, the glory of his humanity. I mean, verse six, just the, the beginning of this story where it just says that he came to Jacob's well, Jesus being weary from his journey, he sat down at this well. And, and, and John is notorious for this, little bits of commentary along the way that tell us details about Jesus that you overlook if you don't stop and think, why did he include that? And I think one of the reasons he included that is because this reveals something about the glory of Jesus' humanity. This is, the, this is a glorious revelation because it offers evidence of what the scriptures claim to be so elsewhere, namely, that in Jesus Christ, God became man. He wasn't just God. He, he wasn't just a spirit being. He wasn't a spirit being. He was God, yes, but he came as a man. He was the God-man. And if he wasn't man, then he could not represent us on the cross. He had to die as a man representing men. And so he did. And here we just, we just like looking through a knothole in a fence, we just get a, a little glimpse of Jesus' humanity. And when you see it, it's glorious if you have eyes to see it. Paul talked about it in, Ephesians, in Philippians 2, how Jesus, being God, emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, a slave, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this is, this is shocking. This is astounding. Christianity is the only religion in the world where the central feature is the humility and death of its God. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus is glorious because he is the word made flesh. I'm going to have to move faster on these. Number two, we learn something about the glory of Jesus' love for sinners. Um, just the fact that he came to the well, the Samaritan woman came to him, and he engages with her. Give me a drink. Nobody does that. No Jew would do that. In spite of all the national, racial, and gender tensions that exist between Jesus and this woman, he steps into her world without any hesitation, and he does it for one reason, so that she would be saved. She had nothing to offer him. Well, I take that back. She had nothing to offer Jesus except her sin. And Jesus had everything that she could possibly need, both in this life and in life eternal. And we were talking, I was talking with a brother after the first service about the impact this message made on him relative to seeing the love of God for man. And he teared up and he said, I am so convicted. I so often see the world as my enemy and people as folks to stay away from and to avoid except to do business with or whatever. But God loves them. God loves them. He loved this woman. She had nothing to offer. I mean, I, know, I don't know about you, but sometimes, you know, especially I'm in the position I'm in, sometimes people come and they want and they want and they want and they want and they want. And I think, oh, just, just for a minute, let me, let me rest without a phone call or, or whatever. And here's Jesus. He's God. He has everything that everyone needs. And he was always pursuing, always pursuing, always pursuing. She had nothing to offer but his sin. He had everything. Nevertheless, listen to this. She didn't go searching for him. She didn't go searching for him. Rather, he went looking for her. He sent the disciples to get lunch. And this is the way God is. When we, re we read the scriptures, we ask ourselves, okay, Father, I'm going to read this story. What does it tell me about you? Here's something that tells us about him. God is always the initiator. And he will always be the giver. 
He will always be the giver. You gave of your offering this morning? You only gave what he gave to you. Number three, we learn something about the glory of Jesus' relationship with the Father. This is great. In verse 10 and verse 14, I know I'm reading all of these. We've gone through all of this, but I just want you to see the glory of Jesus' relationship with the Father. Listen, whoever Jesus was, and that's what John is doing. He's trying to reveal to us who Jesus was. Whoever Jesus was, we know this. He had the authority to offer man everything that God was for Israel, for the Old Testament. Jesus offered this woman living water. And when you read that, you think, wow, that's kind of a, that's kind of a neat metaphor. I can kind of see, I can connect living water with eternal life. That works, and Jesus does it again in John 17. That works, or John 7. And I, I get that. But if you, don't, if you don't study, if you don't think deeply or ask questions of the text, you'll miss something really significant. And that is what we talked about a few weeks ago, Jeremiah 2, where God is bringing the nation of Israel on trial, and he says, these are the two charges I have against you. Number one, you have forsaken me, and then he tells us who he is, the fountain of living water. And you've hewn for yourselves cisterns, number two, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You've, you've forsaken me for idols, is what he's saying. But here's Jesus. Jesus has the authority to offer this woman and us everything that God is for us. He is the fountain of living water. Interestingly enough, in John 7, when Jesus goes back to this theme and he calls the people at the feast to come and quench their thirst in him, and he mentions the living water, John puts in a note of commentary and says, this he spoke of, of the Holy Spirit. And so, Jeremiah 2, God the Father. John 7, uh, Holy Spirit. And here in John 4, Jesus himself. Listen, salvation is always a Trinitarian exercise. It always involves, just like creation, it involved the Father, it involved the Son, it involved the Holy Spirit. Your salvation is no small thing. It is no small thing. And it wasn't for this woman either. But this all tells us something about who Jesus is, whoever he is. He has the authority to offer men everything that the Father is for them and to call them to come and receive it. So Jesus is glorious because of his relationship with the Father. Number four, we learn something about the glory of Jesus' ability to know the secrets of man's hearts. This is a shocking part of the story in verses 17 and 18 when Jesus is offering the living water and the woman is dialoguing with him and she says, Sir, verse 11, uh, you have nothing to draw with. In verse 13, Jesus offers the water again. In verse 15, she says, Lord, sir, give me this water. I want this water. And Jesus says in verse 16, go call your husband. What does that have to do with anything? It has everything to do with it because... Because leaving her sin undealt with, unexposed, would have left her in her sorry, hopeless, godless situation. She would have been lost. The reason Jesus told the woman to call her husband was to expose her secret life of adultery and sin. I tell you, beloved, he knew everything there was to know about this woman. And he knows everything that you know about you and more. So why did he expose this sin? Here's why. Because he loved her. Because he loved her. And because he loved her, he would not allow her to keep her, her, her sin hidden. And she, like all sinners, was an idolater at heart. She had forsaken the fountain of living waters and hewed for herself broken cisterns. And you know what they were called? Men. Her idol. Broken cisterns that leaked. They couldn't hold any water. And she found that repeatedly five times now. And she was on her sixth. And so it was the most loving thing he could do. Expose her idolatry. Expose her sin. Why? So that she could become 
a true worshiper, a true worshiper who would worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And that tells us something about the Father, doesn't it? Jesus says, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. You know who God seeks to be his worshipers? Not the elite, not the religious, but the unrighteous. God justifies who? The unrighteous. You think you're righteous? Gospel doesn't have any power for you. You realize how wicked a sinner you are? And the gospel was designed for you. It was everything for you. And you have access to Christ through the gospel because God justifies the ungodly. She would have remained without hope and without God in this world, but Jesus wouldn't let her. He knew her. He knew her heart. He knew her need. And so he he exposed her sin so that she would thirst for the living water. And he was willing to take whatever risk to do everything necessary to meet that need. That's the glory of Christ. That's the glory of Jesus. Number five, we learn something about the glory of Jesus' honor of women. Just very practical here. John doesn't make a big point of this, but he says enough here to make us perk up and go, what's his relationship with women? This is different. It's obviously contrasted with the Jews and other rabbis, and then John puts in stark relief, and speaking of himself, he's one of the five disciples here, Their view of women was different than his. So here's Jesus engaging in this ministry and in this conversation with a woman. This unnamed Samaritan woman. But this wasn't his only, it's not the only woman he ministered to. Now think about it. Who else did he honor? His mother, Mary. Mary Magdalene. The woman bent over for 18 years. The Syrophoenician woman. Mary Martha, the widow with the two coins, and there were others. I mean, beloved, all you have to do, if you don't get this, I mean, in America, we have uh, women's liberation, and we have women's rights, and women uh, uh, equality, right, among men and women, and, you know, we're closer than we've ever been on that in the society. But you know what? You go around the world. You just pick any third world country, and you go. You pick any Muslim country, um, and you will see how women are oppressed and beaten and treated like dogs. And it's horrific. And I just noticed this last week, and we don't have time to talk about it this week either, just food for thought. Everywhere the gospel finds root in a society, women are honored. And that's how it should be. And Jesus was a living example of that. He's a living example. And number six, we learn something about the glory of Jesus as the Christ. And I mean, this is what the whole thing's about, right? Everything before verse 26 had a very definite goal, namely to bring us to the point where Jesus reveals who he is. John tells us in chapter 20 who he wants us to understand Jesus is. He is the Christ, the Son of God. So far in the story, Jesus hasn't revealed that to the Jews or anybody else. But here to this Samaritan sinner, he says to her, she says, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, and he says, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. He wants us to see the glory of Jesus Christ and come to the conclusion that he indeed is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, so that we will find life in his name Jesus is glorious because he is the promised Messiah. He is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, I realize that we've spent five weeks on this passage, but I just can't help adding one more. One short message because there's more to be seen here, and I can't help but look one last time at this passage through God's microscope as it were, to see more of the glory of Jesus. So can we do that one more time? I don't know why I'm asking you, because we're going (laughs) to. Next 25 minutes or so, I want to kind of walk you through this. I suppose the only other time we find in Scripture a revival like the one that happened here because of this woman um, 
is the one that happened in Jonah's day. The reluctant prophet, one day, he's swimming on the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> he gets barfed up on the beach. He walks into Nineveh reluctantly. He's bleached. He's probably got seaweed in his hair. I don't know. But he has a message. 40 days, and God's going to judge. So will he say anything else? Nope. 40 days, and God is going to judge. We said that the first day. What did he say the second day? 39 days. I mean, look, we don't need to go to seminary if this is what it takes to preach, right? 39 days, 38 days, and judgment is coming. And you know what? That's all it took. God, the Holy Spirit, moved in. Transformation. Biggest revival that I know of in all of the Word of God, except in the, in the end, in Revelation. But here we are. This was huge. I mean, look at verse 39. From that city, and we don't have time to review any of the story. You just have to read it if you don't know it. But here's the conclusion. From that city, Sychar, Samaria, in Samaria, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all things I have ever done. And so the Samaritans came to Jesus, and they were asking him to stay with him. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they were all saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believed, for we have heard for ourselves And we know that this one is indeed, listen, the Savior of the world. Amazing. If you don't get amazing out of that, you just need to go home and pray that God will do something amazing in your heart. This is glorious, beloved. This is glorious. So Jesus told the woman that he was the Messiah, and she ran and told the townsmen, maybe this is the Messiah. This couldn't be the Messiah, could it? And they got a chance to speak with Jesus, invited him to stay for two days, and at the end of that that two days, they concluded, this is the Savior of the world. I want to spend the rest of our time talking about what that means. So, I told you I I would let you know. The sermon's beginning here. (laughs) Savior of the world? Savior of the world. Is the world going to be saved? I mean, is everybody in the world going to be saved? What is the Savior of the world? Well, we we looked at this in John 3.16, but what is the world? What is the world? Now, I'm going to give you several pieces here that are going to seem like they, they don't connect very well, but in the end, you'll see it all come together. I trust unless I inadvertently short-circuit it, which I've done in the past. So here we go. We've already seen the word for world here. It's cosmos. We say cosmos in Greek, cosmos. And, and this, was, this was a favorite word of John. A favorite, not just word, but theme of John. It occurs 185 times in the New Testament. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear stuff like that, I think that doesn't mean anything to me. I mean, the word the is used like a million times in the New Testament. Why should I, word cosmos, world, why should I even care? 185 times. What's significant is that of that 185 times, 105 of those times is in John's writing. Everything else is outside of John. Now, when I say John's writing, I mean Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation, okay? So five books, three of them are really, really short. A hundred and five usages of the word cosmos. He uses the word cosmos 78 times just here in the Gospel of John, and then 24 more times in his three short letters, and then three times in Revelation. Now, in case it hasn't hit you, the impact of that, let me just tell you, by contrast, Matthew The Gospel of Matthew, 28 chapters long, um, not used very much. In all 28 chapters, eight times. And only three times 
in Mark and Luke. And so what does that tell us? Well, it may not tell us anything on its face, but what it should What it should alert us to is the reality that if John's using this word so much, it must indicate some kind of pattern, some theme here. And indeed it does. What does the world mean? What does cosmos cosmos mean? In John's gospel, it usually refers to people who live on earth. (laughs) That's that's not very narrow, but people who live on earth. Humanity is what it means. Humanity. Humanity without reference to race or nationality or gender or religion. Humanity, the world. And this is especially true in the latter parts of the gospel where the the word consistently refers to the human race, but with a bit of a twist. The human race in its opposition to God, which, by the way, is the state we're all born in. All of us are born rebels. Rebels. And a good example of this is found in John chapter 13. You can flip over there, just to go to the right, just a few pages to John chapter 13. And here's what we read, just this very first verse. And he says this, Now before the feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this, what? World. It's all right, you can talk in church. Uh, just make sure you're talking to me or to the Lord. Um, would depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the what? The world. He loved them to the end. So what is this world? The world is this sea of humanity in which his people live. And turn just maybe another page to the right or to John chapter 17. In verse 9, here's Jesus' high priestly prayer. And this is what he says. I ask on... I ask on their behalf, meaning his people. And then he he contrasts. He says, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. So now here's a clear contrast. There is the world of humanity who have made themselves enemies of God, and there are those you have given to me, his people, the church, for they are yours. What is the world? The world is humanity, sinful humanity. And beloved, you have to go back to John 3.16 and listen to those messages on what the love of God is and how we should understand it differently in different places. Because what John tells us is God loves that world. The sea of humanity that hates him. He loves that world. And out of that world, he is calling to himself those who would be his own. Now, to bring this into clearer focus, it's helpful to see, uh, helpful to see all of this in a relationship of Jesus being the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. So go back. We're in John chapter 4. Turn a couple pages to the left, maybe just one. Jesus is the light. He is the light. In John chapter 1, verse 9, we read this. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Well, that sounds very similar, doesn't it? Savior of the world enlightens every man. It's very universal. It's universal in nature, in scope. And so, the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. So we've got to ask ourselves, what's the true light here? What's the true light? Now, if, um, if you've read anything of Bill Gothard's material, you'll know that he says this is conscience. The problem with that is in the next passage, in the next couple of verses, um, that light creates the world. So it can't be conscience. The Quakers believed it was some kind of inner light, some innate spark of divinity within man that each of us is born with a spark of God. Well, just... Read Romans 3, and you'll be divested of that. And I wouldn't even know where to begin with all the problems of that view. So if the light isn't some kind of inner spark, and it's not conscience, then what is it? I mean, clearly, clearly the text says there, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Now, how, how should we understand that? 
Well, the light refers to none other than the, than the person of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, I'm not sure we needed a commentary to know that. I mean, right? This, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the light who came into the world and enlightens every man. Now, what does it mean that he enlightens every man? James Montgomery Boyce helps us with this. He says this, The point of this verse is that Jesus shone upon all men from outside as a spotlight shines upon a darkened house front or the front of an empty house rather than there being light shining from within. All around is dark. The house is dark. Here comes the light. Now you can see the house because the light is coming from outside of it, not from within. And so it is with humanity. The light comes and it shines upon all men. It enlightens every man, not in the sense of intellectual enlightenment or in the sense of any kind of spiritual enlightenment, but that Jesus shines the light of the glory of God upon men. He is the light. How do we know God? By looking to Jesus. And so when Jesus came into the world, the cosmos, he shined the light of the glory of God upon sinful humanity. You could even narrow it down even more and say the truly intense part of this light is the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he shined upon humanity. He came to show the world who God is and how they could be reconciled to him. In that sense, he was light coming into the world. He came as a light shining upon all of this humanity that rejects God. But there's still another way to see Jesus in relation to the world. Jesus not only is light, but Jesus as the lamb. Jesus as the lamb. In case you're waiting for the good part of this sermon, it's coming. Right here. Jesus is the Lamb. Why is Jesus called the Lamb? Well, John the Baptist was the first to say it. John 1, 29. He says this. John writes, The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Wait, he's light of the world, Savior of the world, taking away the sin of the world. Well, let's all become universalists. Be careful. Now, clearly, we know from the rest of the New Testament and from Jesus' own teaching that Jesus is only the Savior of those who believe in him. Salvation is by faith alone. And the author of Hebrews writes very clearly, without faith, it is impossible to please God. It is impossible. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not in yourselves. It is a gift of God. Nobody gets saved apart from embracing the truth about Jesus. So how do we reconcile this? How do we understand Jesus as lamb who takes away the sin of the cosmos, the world, a world of humanity? Well, first we need to look back to the old sacrificial system. You ready for a little Old Testament education? You know these things, but I bet most of us never connected the dots, including me. That's why I love this job. (laughs) And here's what we find. In the Old Testament system of worship, God had ordained that an innocent substitute, a lamb, would be put to death in the place of the one who had sinned. You know that. We see the roots of this practice all the way back, all the way back into the early moments of Genesis. An allusion to it, immediately after Adam and Eve sin, God does what? He kills an animal. It's not explicit there on terms of sacrifice then, but it's implicit And then we have, it gets a little more explicit when you have Cain and Abel. And somehow they knew, the scriptures don't tell us how, but God was communicating with them somehow relative to sacrifices to him. And Cain brought the sacrifice of vegetables or whatever it was he brought out of his field. 
And the Lord took no delight in that. Somehow they knew that. And Abel brought something from his flock and shed blood and killed it. And then we have the story of Abraham. Just fast forward a whole bunch of years in, in Israel's history. We come to Abraham. You've got to listen to this, okay? Try to track with me now. God comes to Abraham one day. He's taken him out of the city of Ur. He tells him, just follow me. Where are we going? You don't need to know that. Just follow me. Trust me. Believe me. And so here he is following God. He gets into the promised land. God says, everywhere you look, everywhere your foot touches, that's, that's going to be the land of your people. Look into the stars. Count them. Um, so, so will your people be. And of course he says, I, I don't have a son. No problem. Your wife's going to be pregnant. You could birth in a year. And so Isaac comes along, only son. Mark that, only son. Think John 3.16. I want you to see the parallels. John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. So this is Abraham's only son. His only son grows to be a teenager. He loves his son. Ishmael, he's a problem. But Abraham, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, but Isaac, my joy, my delight, and maybe his idol. And God says with him one day, Abraham, take your son, your only son, to the place that I will command, and you sacrifice him on the altar. Can you imagine? Now push the pause button on my sermon. We'll come back to it, I think. I think there's a reason that you need to consider why that story is put in the Bible. And it has, I think it's far greater than just making the connections of where Israel comes from and the lineage of Jacob, who would be Israel and his descendants. There's something far bigger here, far bigger, because I believe in that text, God wants you to feel something very deep and scandalous. Back to the story. Abraham, take your one, your only son. Take him up to the mountain that I tell you, probably Mount Moriah, where Jerusalem is today, and you sacrifice him on an altar. So they start going. And Isaac, teenager, probably looks at his dad and thinks, I can take him. And he asks his dad, um, Dad, Fire, wood, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says to his son, the Lord will provide. And so he goes to the mountain. He, he constructs an altar, probably just stones on the ground, large uncut stones on the ground. And he takes his son and he binds his hands. Somehow Isaac cooperated with this. He binds his hands and he lays him on the altar, and he takes that knife, and you're reading the story. You're reading this, and you're thinking deeply about it, and you see in your mind's eye, he raises that knife over his son, and in your heart, you start crying, no, 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 don't do it, Abraham. Don't do it, don't do it, this is wrong. Don't kill your son, and God, what are you doing? Why are you telling him to kill? He said, you don't believe in human sacrifice. We don't do human sacrifice. And he takes that knife, and he's about to plunge it into the heart of his son, and God stops him. An angel appears. Abraham, stop! And Abraham stops at the last minute, and they hear this bleeding over here, bleating, B-L-E-E-T, over in the bush. This ram, this, this goat, this lamb, maybe he was there before and nobody noticed, maybe he just appeared. God provides. Now why? Why did he put Abraham through that? And why does he put you through the trauma of having to read that? I'll tell you why. Fast forward about 2,000 years. A man has taken... He's pure, he's holy, he's never done anything wrong in his entire life. He gets thrown on a cross, and a Roman soldier comes with a nail and a hammer, 
And you start saying, no, 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 this is unjust. This is unjust. Stop. And they don't stop. They don't stop. And then we read in Paul. Think Abraham, God spared his son. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? He's speaking to the persecuted church, suffering people, you in your time of need. Okay, back to the sermon. What do we see in these sacrifices, Old Testament? We see this pattern. One man, one sacrifice. One man, one sacrifice. So we're at Abraham. Let's fast forward to Moses. Moses is there trying to rescue people from Egypt, his people, God's people from Egypt. And 10th plague comes along. And God says to Moses, the angel's going to come, take every firstborn, get ready, and here's how you can protect your people. Have them take a lamb, a spotless lamb, and here's what I want you to do. Bring that spotless lamb into your home for three days. Now, what would, you, what would that do to your kids, dads? I got one child who, as soon as that lamb walks through the door, best buddies for life. I mean, BFF, right? Forever, this is mine, my little sheepy, my little lamb. I love, she just loves animals. For three days, she gets to play with it, take it outside on a leash, walk it, pet it, cuddle it, sleep with it, under my blanket with me. On the third day, dad comes takes the leash and the lamb and walks out to the backyard and starts heading to the temple. And the children start saying, what are you doing? No, 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 no. This is our lamb. This is our pet. This is, this is our, she's ours. Don't take him away from us. Don't kill him. This is wrong. This is wrong. And dad turns around and says, it must be done. It must be done. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. You feel that? You feel it with Abraham? You feel the heart of a child seeing dad take the little lamb away to be killed? And what happens? Well, there they are in Egypt. I said temple, but the temple hasn't been built yet. Every family in Egypt slaughters their lamb, puts the blood on the door. What's the principle here? Well, with Abraham and with Abel, one person, one lamb. But here in Israel, the rule was different. I'm sorry, in Egypt, the rule was different. Passover, family, get together, one lamb. And if you have any single neighbors... Or neighbors who have got less than, I forget the number, is it two or three? Bring them over to your house. They get to partake of the lamb. Lamb, it's going to be food for everybody. Come, and, and they're all in your house. And the blood covers everybody in the house. And so here it is. One lamb, one family. One lamb, one family. Now fast forward. They cross the Red Sea. They get to Sinai. God gives them the law. Gives them the law. And the law states that um, not only are you going to worship him through Passover, not only are you going to come to God with your lamb, if you individually have sinned, not only are you going to come on Passover with your lamb for the whole family and the single women and, and whoever around you, but once a year on the Day of Atonement, there will be a lamb sacrificed, except it will not be for your family and it won't be for you in particular. It is one lamb one nation. One lamb, one nation. And that's the way it was. And then Jesus arrives. 
Jesus arrives. Jesus arrives and John tells his disciples, you don't need to be following me anymore. See him? That's the Lamb of God. He's the Lamb of God. And this isn't one lamb, one person. This isn't one lamb, one family. This isn't one lamb, one nation. This is one lamb for the whole world. He takes away the sin of the world. What's he saying? This one is the Savior. He is the world's only Savior. That's who Jesus is. And you can say that in reverse. He is the Savior of the world. What's he saying? There's only one lamb. There's only one sacrifice. Read Hebrews. One sacrifice for all. That's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. And this is the way he ended his life. And you read different ways. Uh, the, the Passion Week is, is kind of chopped up among scholars and try to figure it out on the calendar. And many believe that on Palm Sunday, Jesus, it was then that Jesus entered Jerusalem. And it may have been also then that he was arrested. In obedience to, the God's, to God's law, as the head of every family was bringing their little lamb to Jerusalem to be slain, Jesus was being arrested and prepared to be slain. And it may very well be, depending on how the timing worked out, that while those lambs were being killed, he was being killed. Little did anyone realize that there was another lamb being slain not just for Israel, but for the world. The Jews wanted to make sure Jesus was dead on the high Sabbath, and so they had him killed that very evening, just hours before all the other little lambs would have died. But not for his own sins, and not for the sins of his family or sins of his disciples. It would be one lamb for the whole world. Now, I wish we had a record of what Jesus had said to the Samaritans here back in John chapter 4. How did, they, how did they figure this out? How did they know this? I don't know what he taught them, but it must have been significant. We don't have a record of what was said, but it must have been amazing to listen to. It must have been something like what he told those two disciples on the way to Emmaus after the resurrection. We don't know exactly what Jesus said then, but we do know from Luke, that he says this, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. There's the Messiah, there's the Messiah, there's the Messiah, there's the Lamb of God, there's the Lamb of God, there's the Lamb of God, there's the Lamb of God. I am the Lamb of God. And proved it. And I imagine since these were Samaritans and they only believed in the first five books of the Bible, Jesus said, okay, let's start with there. Start with Genesis. Remember the first promise? Someday I will raise up a son and he will crush the serpent's head. It's me. And I can prove it. We don't know what he said. We don't know the message he gave them or the questions he answered or if there was any miracles performed there. I think not. It's one of the beautiful things about this passage is all of these people came to faith without one miracle, at least not one recorded. What did the world do when Jesus appeared? You say, if he's the Savior of the world, doesn't that mean everybody's saved? No. What happened when Jesus appeared as the light? You remember that? They rejected the light. John chapter 3, verse 19, this is the judgment, that the light came into the world and the men loved darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. The light came, they rejected him. What happened when Jesus came as the lamb? Same thing. They rejected him. They rejected him. And that's what the world does. 
Apart from the Holy Spirit, Paul goes out of his way to say nobody can say that Jesus is the Christ apart from the Holy Spirit. There's got to be that work in your heart. But the invitation is clear. Come, come. We saw this last week. May everything that God provides for you in Jesus be yours. I mean, the world rejects him. But ultimately, the question is not, what will the cosmos do with Jesus? But what will you do with the Lamb of God? What will you do with the Savior of the world? You too could reject him. You could turn your back on the light, on the Lamb, on the Savior. Maybe you've grown up in this church for years. You've been a part of it since you were a child. It's great to be raised in a good church and in a great family. So many of you are. And you're still here. Praise God. But maybe, just maybe, you're facing one of the dangers of growing up in a Christian home. You know what that is? You can go through all of your childhood years and get to the end and realize you've been riding on your mom and dad's coattails. Their faith is their faith, and you've just been following along with them, and it's not your own. And your mom and dad keep sharing the gospel with you. They keep bringing you to church. Your Iwana leader shares the gospel with you. Your Sunday school teacher shares the gospel with you. You keep hearing the gospel everywhere, and you're just, oh, my mom and dad believe. I'm a believer. I've been a believer all my life. Really? Really? Maybe their faith is not your faith. And maybe it's time for that to change. And so I ask, what about your faith? When will you believe? When will you come to your mom and dad one day and say, now it is no longer because of what you have said. Because I have heard from myself. And I know. I know. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Beloved, there's no application here for you in terms of how to run your business or how to make your marriage better. This is all about you being reconciled to God. And if you already know Christ and keeping yourself holy and pure before God, keeping that fellowship with him is found in the same place. It's found in the same place. The Savior of the world is also the sanctifier of your soul. And he loves you as much now as he ever loved you when you were a sinner. And perhaps it could be argued even more because now he loves you, the Father loves you as much as he loves his own son. That's amazing. And that, beloved, should cause us to glory in, to worship, to be stunned and amazed by the majesty of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father, every time I come to this book, you amaze me. And perhaps part of that is just because I, I have such a, a low capacity for grasping these things, but I suspect it's more than that. I think it's because no one will ever fully grasp the magnitude, the majesty, the glory of Jesus. But thank you for showing us him. Thank you for revealing him to us. May we live now in a manner that's pleasing to him for your great glory and for our own great joy. For I pray it in Jesus' name.